From Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. From Connecticut, I'm Erica Ducey. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And yes, we are without Adam, but we are not without ads. This podcast brought to you by Cognac USA, Speed Rack, and Vine Pair. We're collaborating to offer 10 $1,000 cash stipend prizes exclusively for professional bartenders. Uh, you can enter by creating an original Cognac cocktail, and you can even receive bonus points through viewing Speed Rack's Instagram live videos. Visit CognacConnection.com. That's CognacConnection.com for details and to enter. The deadline is August 31st, and that's CognacConnection.com. Again, the campaign is financed with aid from the European Union. Erica, what's your favorite cognac cocktail? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I actually, there's not a lot of cocktails that I, like, if I'm going to drink cognac, I'm probably going to drink it straight. And I, I feel like it's one of those things that, you know, if you really enjoy it, maybe that's one of the ones to savor. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a place for the you know, uh, higher end and trust me, cognac goes really high end really quick. Uh, but like the, the higher end stuff, yeah, I wouldn't mix in a cocktail. I mean, the Sazerac, which is, is often traditionally made with uh, cognac is I think a, a delicious cocktail. I will say, I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this. Uh, a couple years ago, I created a drink for our uh, bar program at one of the restaurants that I was uh, running. And it was a, a sort of my take on a Vieux Carré, which is typically like a split base cocktail with cognac and, and rye. Um, and so I did that, but it was, um, instead of, um, basically like the Benedictine everything, we kind of went with like, um, I'm trying to think had Strega in it. And now that I'm bringing this up, I'm forgetting what all was in the cocktail. Probably should have done my research beforehand. Uh, but I, I think the Vieux Carré is kind of a fun one, even if it's not like a pure cognac cocktail. It is. It's it, That is a delicious cocktail. I just, in, in the winter especially, I just really love the idea, even if I don't have a fireplace, of sitting around the <laughs> fire with, uh, with a, a snifter of cognac. But really, I, I just use a rocks glass. <laughs> You're telling me you don't retire to your hunting lodge every winter? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm getting there. Not quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, when this podcast finally blows up. <laughs> So I, I had another question for you before we get into today's topic, uh, which was, you know, I, I we were we were sort of debating what to discuss this this uh, this week, and and I, maybe we will eventually come back to this question that I'm going to ask you, uh, but but we sort of went in another direction as you'll find out in a moment. But I was curious, you know, you you're the parent of a couple of kids who are older than my son, and, and right now my son's interaction with alcohol is basically learning a surprisingly large number of grape varieties because we teach them to him. Uh, his favorite is Roussan, in case anyone's wondering. Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, like, how do your kids react to what you do for a living? Yeah, I think they think it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, uh, although my husband has an even more interesting job because he's playing with clay all day. So yeah. nothing really can compare to that. However, uh, they do seem to think that it's interesting that I'm tasting a lot of wines and tasting spirits and thinking about cocktails and, you know, sometimes making up uh, recipes. And um, people seem to get a lot of enjoyment when they're at our house because I'm always whipping up something. <laughs> And I always love to have a special cocktail that I'm serving if people come over or, um, or, you know, I'm pouring wines. And so I think uh, the 
parties at our house and even small gatherings tend to be pretty festive. And I'm always interested in, for example, at the end of a meal, um, you know, pulling out a couple bottles of Armagnac or Cognac or something. And so people are always tasting and testing and talking about it. And the girls do love uh, smelling in the glass. And um, I, I think one of my um, proudest moments was when my daughter Gia was about uh, six years old. And, um, and I asked her to smell into the glass of sherry and she told me that it smelled like nuts and I was so proud of her and and she was very quizzically looking at me like yeah it tastes like nuts (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome I also now I can't believe this never occurred to me before but it feels like the final form of your and Jana's like relationship is opening the world's fanciest like pottery painting and wine sipping extravaganza like I'm sure you have seen those advertised the like you know go paint some clay, you know, some pottery and sip wine, but yours would be the fanciest of them all. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much our house all the time. So (laughs) they, they tend to have a a good time and, and we do open up the studio and have little parties up there um, when we're not in a social distancing period. And, uh, and so they are playing with clay and I'm making cocktails. I love to do a spritz bar um, when we're up there. So uh, there's a lot of fun stuff to do. And I think for kids, you know, in terms of, um, I mean, they're, they're pretty young, so we're not talking too much about like response responsibility around alcohol yet. I just, I don't think they're quite there yet from a um, standpoint of um, really understanding like the the depth and nuance of that. But um, certainly we do not have any sort of sloppy behavior around them. So um, I think that's our our way of uh, kind of presenting what um, alcohol looks like when consumed in a responsible manner. That is good. Yeah, we, uh, it, as you probably no doubt know, it's harder, you know, the sloppiness is, is a trickier thing to manage when you have a young child, because there's just no way that goes well for anyone, uh, even if you were tempted to it. Um, it's uh, dealing with a two year old with a hangover is uh, really, really miserable. Been there once or twice, sadly. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting a little old for hangovers, I think. <laughs> uh, well, no, this would have been a natural segue if we were talking about uh, hangover-free wine, but uh, we are, we are, we're going to be kind of in that general vein, so we might as well move on to, to the topic for today's show. And I, I think this is a really fascinating uh, conversation that, that hopefully we're going to have here, which is about, I think, you know, the sort of increased scrutiny potentially being paid to not just wine, but all beverage uh, and labeling. And Eric, I think you can probably kind of set the ground uh, a little bit better than I can in this context. I'll just say, though, that I think one of the things that is important to understand uh, as we get into this conversation is that in the United States, alcohol has traditionally been sort of exempted from the, the rules that surround most other consumable products in terms of the requirement to disclose nutritional facts and, uh, you know, ingredients and things like that. And there's a real conversation going on, you know, on this podcast, but also just in the industry as a whole, about whether it's time to sort of give up that uh, special exemption and and be more uh, upfront about what is in a bottle or can. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, the, the big things that I think 
we need to realize is that virtually everything you can buy at a grocery store or in in any other part of your life. I mean, at chain restaurants, for example, everything comes with a nutrition label these days. Um, at chain restaurants, you have, uh, you know, calories um, listed on menus, on uh, the soda you're drinking, any any sort of other drinks except for alcohol, it's labeled. And why is alcohol exempt? So, you know, the short answer there is that uh, it's a legacy of prohibition. So alcoholic beverages aren't regulated by the FDA like everything else, but uh, the TTB. So it's the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, and they don't require nutritional labeling. But consumer advocates have been pressuring the agency for years, many years, to add this uh, con- this labeling. And it just never seems to happen happen. Most recently, last year, uh, the modernization of the labeling and advertising regulations for wine, distilled spirits, and malt beverages, notice number 176 was uh, up for review, and um, they did uh, make some changes to the laws around labeling, but it did not concern nutritional labeling. So um, the TTB said uh, in April of this year that they will revisit those labels at a later time. But I think the the real thing that we're, we're finding is that consumers want to know what they're drinking. Um, and because we have created this environment uh, of opaqueness around what is in the bottle across beer, wine, and spirits, that's done two things. It's turned many consumers off of these products onto other categories. So hard seltzer, for one, <laughs> Hard seltzer is one that has adequate product labeling. And I think that that is one of the things that has really led to the rise of hard seltzer. And then second, uh, there has also been these dubious marketers, uh, these clean wine marketers, these fitness marketers making all sorts of claims about their wines that are verifiably false uh, and that we have fact-checked and have published articles about. Yet, uh, it's because of this environment of opaqueness that those claims have now risen up. Yeah, I think this is something that maybe more people in the beverage alcohol space should have seen coming, that if you're not transparent, people will use that lack of transparency against you, uh, whether they're doing so dishonestly themselves or not, it doesn't really seem to matter. And and I think, you know, yeah, you pointed out this, this whole issue with these clean wine companies, and this has, this has come up a few times in the past, but as you know, one of the people who wrote one of those articles, I will say that it was remarkable kind of going down this rabbit hole of, you know, what are some of these claims that are made? And, and really they are, uh, a lot of it is sort of an implication uh, that, well, our wine isn't, doesn't have these ingredients in it. We don't use these additives. So therefore your inference as a consumer, especially a, a not super well-informed one is, well, everyone else must be using these because if you're making a point to say, we don't put, you know, cyanide in our wines, which no one does, actually. It's actually not even allowed anymore. Uh, 
well, I mean, I don't want that. And, and, and the implication is every other wine has that. And, and, but again, this is where wine has and, and beer and spirits have made themselves vulnerable for the most part. I will say, and one of the things I really wanted to get into in this conversation though, Eric, and I'm curious your thoughts on it right away is, you know, I do think there is a fundamental difference between understanding between wanting labeling that gives consumers actionable information, like how many calories are in a serving of this versus information that I'm not sure is all that useful. Like one of the, one of the wineries that does label uh, in terms of uh, ingredients is Ridge and Ridge is a great winery makes exceptional wine. But if you look at that label, I think even for a wine professional, it's pretty, uh, you know, opaque, I suppose. I mean, you have to know a lot about how wine is made to understand, you know, basically like, is what they're talking about here normal? Is it reasonable that they, you know, add uh, nutrition to, you know, nutrients to the yeast? Or is it is it normal to water wine down? Or like, like, I don't have any context. And so yeah, for me as a professional, for you as a professional, those words mean something. But to a consumer, I'm not sure that a list of ingredients is going to help them at all. Maybe it will. But but I think that like the calorie thing is one side, the, the specifics on what's in the product are another. Yeah, I, from my perspective, I think that as much transparency as possible is the way to go. And it's really about educating consumers. Um, and the, the reason that I am for more transparency is that what you don't say can be used against you. So for example, I think probably a good example from Ridge would be um, calcium carbonate. People might not know what calcium carbonate is and then may want to look it up or go to Ridge's website where you can see it, 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 that it's saying, you know, small additions of this compound are used during uh, fermentation um, to moderate unusually high natural acidity, right? So I think if you give an explanation and you are stating why something would be used in a wine, uh, then that takes away the ability of marketers to use it against you. And I think that that's the I think that's the unintended sort of unrecognized thing that people in the industry just didn't anticipate. Like, I think people in the industry thought for a long time, you know, it's not going to be a good idea for us to label because if we start putting calorie counts on things, then people will drink less or, you know, there's practical concerns for winemakers, certainly around um, cost. So having to test all these bottles, every vintage that certainly has a cost to it. But when you don't do those things, um, then that's when you're you're opening yourself up for um, bigger problems to happen where, you know, these kind of unscrupulous marketers come in and start to eat your cake, <laughs> start to take all of your business away because they're saying like, oh, we don't do all of these shady things when really not much of, of what is happening is very shady at all. Yeah, and I think it's also important to sort of, in some way, as possible, as much as possible, differentiate between between sort of to me two two different important things with ingredient labeling. So I think we talk sometimes. Or I think it's sometimes muddied in in even professionals' minds, let alone consumer minds. You know. Uh, there, there's a sort of history, a sort of unfortunate history of wine, if you stretch back far enough, of things being added to wine or wine being adulterated in various ways that was not only disingenuous, like producers in Burgundy blending in Rhone 
uh, Rhone wine or, or even North African wine to bulk their wines out. Same thing with producers in Bordeaux to like the Austrian scandal surrounding uh, uh, glycerol and their wines in uh, the mid 80s. And, and these are things where the additives could, in the case of that, at least even be potentially toxic or harmful. And I think with with modern winemaking, the area that we're talking about most often is sort of pesticide residues in wine. And that that being, I think, a, a relatively small concern for most wine, but it is a possibility and something that I think I, I understand people's interest in knowing whether that's something that could possibly be in their wine versus a lot of the additives that even the ones that that, that wine connoisseurs might turn their nose up, like at like Mega Purple, which gets, you know, a terrible rap. And look, I, I think there's a there's a sort of philosophical issue with using things like grape concentrate to make your wine seem more colorful and richer in flavor, but it's not at all harmful. There's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't like hurt people. And it's probably the only way that a $5 bottle of California Cabernet can make it to a store shelf. And so I don't personally have a lot of issue with it from a sort of like, oh, this is bad for the public. I think if it was disclosed on the label, it might change people's purchasing decisions, which is probably a good thing. But but I guess I think that's important too, is to understand, you know, what are we trying, what information are we trying to provide to people? Um, and, and how will that affect things? Because uh, again, anything that involves a potential health risk is, is hugely important for that to be disclosed. I, I guess I'm a little bit like, I'm not saying that I don't think winemakers should be forced to disclose when they, you know, sort of modify their wine in, in a variety of ways, but it's, I think it's important to also push back on the notion that doing that is like harmful. It might be, it might not represent the pinnacle of winemaking, but it's not bad for you in any, any real way. Right. That's true. And I think it's, it is a, a reality that people do not have any idea how many calories are in uh, the alcohol that they're drinking. So um, I was looking at some different studies. One public health researcher found that most Americans are drinking 400 calories a day of alcohol. And so, you know, when you think of an average, you know, glass of beer or wine, it's probably around 150 calories and it's much more for cocktails. So I think there's a health concern that is legitimate of people wanting to just, you know, have wanting to know how many calories are in their wine. And that's why these uh, hard seltzers and RTDs have been so successful. Certainly there's the convenience as the appeal, but secondarily, you can really keep track of how much you're drinking. Um, if you look at a lot of the different uh surveys that have been done about labeling, you'll see um, this, the Center for Science and the Public Interest, you know, they say 94% of adults support alcohol content labeling, 91% support ingredient labeling, 89% support calorie labeling. So these things are going to be coming up more and more. And I think the brands that get on board quicker with transparency are going to be the successful ones. So just looking at the EU, for example, um, in the European Union, by the end of 2022, you have to provide uh, nutrition and ingredient information if you are going to be doing business in those countries. So already there, Diageo, Treasury, AB InBev, they have already started to provide ingredient and nutritional information on a voluntary basis before that date on a lot of their products. So this is going to become a bigger and bigger issue, especially, you know, once those 
once 2022, the end of that year happens and it is required, then I think a lot more American consumers are going to be uh, requesting and requiring this. And additionally, I think that the uh, brands that do get ahead of this are going to see better sales result. It may sound counterintuitive to say, oh, if people are looking at the calories and ingredients, like maybe they'll, you know, choose my product over another. But I really do think it will happen because it's that type of transparency that has proven so effective for these clean wine marketers. And when I say transparency, let me put that in air quotes, because <laughs> certainly what they are doing is not transparency. It's pseudoscience and pseudotransparency. But they are coming across as the ones who are taking the high road on this and providing that type of information that consumers are looking for. So once brands that have integrity and, um, you know, are, are doing kind of uh, marketing on the up and up, once they start to provide this level of transparency to their products, I think it's going to take the wind out of the sails of a lot of the clean marketers and fitness marketers who, whose claims will no longer stand up. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting to think about, you know, who, who would benefit in a landscape where ingredient and calorie labeling, nutritional fact, whatever labeling uh, is a staple of the alcohol industry. My concern, and you mentioned this a little bit in the past, was um, that it will disproportionately advantage big companies. You know, you mentioned the big multinationals that are already doing this in a, on a voluntary basis in the EU. As you said, you know, getting this kind of testing done is not necessarily, it's not free and it may not even be cheap. And if you are a small winemaker, a relatively small winery or, you know, brewery, distillery, whatever, that added cost, you have to kind of weigh the the, the benefit you might derive from the cost it will inflict. And, and obviously each winery or each producer or whatever will make their own decision about that. I do wonder, though, that if it's, you know, it's one thing for, like I said, a big multinational to have its own lab where it can easily do this. It's just a part of the everything else that they do uh, as part of the business. I guess I'm concerned on the one hand that this will disproportionately, like I said, uh, benefit the companies that really don't need a whole lot more help at the moment. Um, and also that, you know, the other question I have, and, and I guess this would be, you know, another thing I'd be curious your thoughts on, although I think you sort of mentioned them, which is, you know, what amount, you know, people say, yeah, of course, uh, people say I want ingredient labeling, I want calorie count labeling. But for how many of that 90-ish percent of the population will will those numbers actually drive behavior? Like, I think there's there's a lot of people who would say and do say, I want calorie counts on fast food menus. But when they go through the drive through does that calorie count affect their purchase decision at all? Maybe at the margins, but most people are going to get a Big Mac what a, you know, whatever the calorie count says, right? If that's yeah. what you want, that's what you're going to get. And so I think that, you know, there's this thing where it, it doesn't hurt anyone to have the, that information in the sort of the abstract, but I am a little dubious that, that for, for most consumers, they're going to pick up three bottles of wine or three beers. And the determining factor for them is going to be the calorie count. I think it's going to be what it tends to be already, which is, you know, what is it? What does the label look like? What does it say on the front label? What's the price? You know, that's going to be how people make their decisions. And maybe calorie count is a tiebreaker for some number of those people. Um, and so fair enough, I guess. But I think, you know, like you said, the other thing about this is those there's not a big difference in a lot of these categories. You know, uh, most wine, most dry wine is going to be 
in the same pretty narrow range of calories per per serving. Most, I mean, beer has a bigger range because of, you know, differing levels of alcohol for sure, much more so than wine, frankly, uh, spirits to some extent as well. But, but I guess I just think like, you know, it's, it, it, it's not a bad thing. I'm not sure that it's going to be the, the, the Holy grail of like consumer um, independence and, and freedom that we might sometimes think it is. Yeah. I mean, for, for the concern about wineries having to do it every year, I would, I would say that they're, very well could be some sort of compromise. So for example, um, back in 2017, when the FDA was requiring menu labeling, the Brewers Association said it's going to be a huge burden on on small craft producers to be able to, to do this, uh, these calorie, you know, count um, tests and everything. So what if we work with you, the FDA, to create some sort of general guidelines of what's access- acceptable around um These categories of beer styles instead of individual breweries having to do it themselves. And the FDA agreed. So there, there are workarounds. So I think what if the TTB said, okay, what if you have to do it every five years for your wines? You know, that makes it much more manageable. So I think certainly there could be ways around having to test wines every single year, or maybe it's just once, uh, when a new product comes onto the market and every uh, year or every year that the alcohol changes by more than, you know, a percent and a half. I don't know what it is, but something like that I think could work. So I think to, that's to the first point. And to the second point, I think for the people who are making decisions based on calorie counts, they're doing that already. And they've already turned off wine. Uh, I was just I was just on Twitter with someone today who sent me this photo of a um, brand called Fit Vine, and it was marketed as I, I can't remember the exact calorie count, but it was you know show it was marketing on calories, and uh, you know I I was joking and saying like it's essentially like the Walking Dead. These brands are coming out of the woodwork. Like get your swords ready. You know you need to be like Daryl Dixon out there slaying zombies because they are coming out of the word woodwork. And if the TTB does not step in. It's only going to get worse. Um, But, you know, kind of the bigger point is we've already lost the people who are making um, these calorie count decisions. uh, If they if they're making these just, you know, the decisions on what they purchase based on what's on the label, they haven't been purchasing wine, but maybe they will come back to wine if they do see calorie counts on there. So I think that that would be my perspective. It's, I think that these sunshine initiatives that shed light on um, where there is opaqueness, you know, there may be some skeletons in the closet, but probably not that many. And when you uh, are being more transparent and providing consumers with a level of transparency, there's so much evidence to show that that's what consumers are looking for. And I, I really do think that is the way of the future for wine, beer and spirits. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm a little bit, let's say, mixed in my thought on this because, because you know, this, this comes back to the conversation about ingredient labeling about healthy wine and, and products. And, and I think to some extent, I feel like, you know, a thing that gets missed in here and we, we, we try and bring this up whenever it comes up on the podcast is, you know, alcohol is inherently not a particularly healthy thing. And I think there are ways to which, in which alcohol consumption can be a part of a generally healthy lifestyle. But the idea that, that alcohol consumption is the healthy part of your lifestyle is I think, 
you know, a, a ridiculous claim. And as you mentioned, this is the thing that the TTB and, and others need to push back against. Is anyone in, attempting to intimate or frankly, flat out state that, that, that somehow drinking these wines is good for you? You know, the, the, the whole sort of, uh, you know, whatever is the French paradox, the, the Mediterranean diet stuff, you know, there's a lot of pseudoscience in there. And um, the reality is alcohol is delicious in many cases. It's enjoyable. The effect it has on our brains is something that most people find pleasurable at lower levels, but it's not inherently healthful. And so I guess to some extent, I'm all, I just sort of always a little bit recoil in some way at the idea that like what we should be trying to do is, and again, this isn't necessarily about labeling existing products. It's maybe a little more about designing products that have a label that makes people want to buy them. But it is this idea of like, Frankensteining a product that gets you below a certain calorie count and doesn't use certain ingredients and that, you know, but, but is so divorced from what to me is the pleasurable part of drinking, which is, you know, not just taste, although it's certainly that, but it's also this idea of some sense of a, of a, you know, a through line from a place to a beverage. And I guess I just worry that we're going to end up in this sort of, you know, endless quest to create the lowest calorie, whatever with the, with the fewest ingredients that has, I guess, some flavor, but is really just an engineered product that meets market demand. And and I mean, look, I'm not naive. Obviously there's a lot of wines out there, a lot of beers out there, a lot of spirits out there that do exactly that. And and some of them are delicious and they have a place for sure. But I guess I I feel like I, I worry in wine in particular, if, too much embrace of this uh, of transparency ends up privileging those who where where all they have is transparency. There's there's nothing there. You know, there's just a hmm. clear window in its into a factory or something. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair concern. And from from my perspective, I don't want to drink those wines. I mean, but I think that I also don't want to eat fat free chips or drink you know or eat sugar-free cookies, or I think that I'm a consumer who loves the full fat, full flavored, give me all the provenance, give me all the backstory. That's the type of consumer I am. But I think that I unfortunately am less and less the type of consumer who is looking for all of that, you know, full fat, full experience type thing. And, you know, I think it's just a a reality of where we are in the consumer landscape that literally every other category has some degree of labeling transparency, and this category does not. And now it's being used against the category and consumers are turning off. So I I come to this argument as someone who loves the wine industry and uh, and and the spirits industry and, you know, beer I know less about. But um, but wine in particular, I am legitimately concerned about the future of the wine industry in that if some degree of labeling transparency does not either become um, more embraced on a voluntary perspective, uh, you know, or enforced, if that's what it, it needs to be, then more and more consumers are going to turn off of this category because that's what they expect. Yeah, I think uh, I think I can't uh, I can't and don't want to argue against that. I think it's it's an unfortunate in some ways reality, but but that's what it is. So, 
before we go, Erica, I'm going to read our uh, our delightful uh, Cognac Connection ad one more time, just so in case you folks missed it at the beginning. Uh, if you are a professional bartender and are interested in entering the Cognac Connection Challenge, you can win a $1,000 cash stipend. The deadline to do so is August 31st. And to do that, you go to cognacconnection.com to enter. You can also find more details there. Erica, uh, we made it through without Adam somehow. I, I feel like we didn't even mention Seattle until the last minute of the podcast. He's going to be so disappointed. I'll edit in some some random clips of us saying Seattle and, and talking about the weather just to just to keep up uh, appearances sake. But uh, like I said, Adam will be back next week from his well-earned vacation. And uh, we will... We'll be back waiting for you uh, then. So talk to you later. Talk to you then. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vinepair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vinepair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.